Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we're thrilled to be joined by Iden Second of Felicis Ventures, which since its founding in 2005 has become one of the most successful early stage funds in the world, having invested in companies such as Shopify, Canva, Opendoor, Flexport, Notion, and Plaid. Impressively, the firm has invested in 45 unicorns, and Iden is a nine-time Forbes Midas List investor. Outside of the outstanding track record, Iden brings such an interesting point of view on venture investing, and we went deep into the history and evolution of Felicis and his overall perspectives on running a venture fund. We really hope you enjoy our conversation with Iden. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni is an investment analytics company dedicated to improving private capital markets. Omni's proprietary technology digitizes hard-to-track, unstructured data from private transaction agreements and organizes it in a structured database through an intuitive dashboard. For investors of all sizes, the insights that are provided by this data improve the manager's ability to build strategy and make better decisions. Today, Omni tracks data from over 250,000 private market transactions to provide anonymous, aggregated market benchmarks. I'm also incredibly excited how Omni's solution helps fund managers provide more insightful and accurate reporting to their investors. To learn more, check them out at www.omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Listeners of Venture Unlocked can sign up for 20% off when you mention Venture Unlocked. Aiden, so great to see you and thanks so much for being on here with us today. Thanks, Samir. I really appreciate you having me here. I want to maybe go back and take a walk on memory lane. It's been 17 years since you started Felicis, but I also like to go into the origin stories of what got you into venture. You were at Google before that SGI, for those that remember. But tell us what led up to starting Felicis almost two decades ago. So many things to touch on, but uh, actually, like one thing, my family, uh, both my mom and dad are entrepreneurs. So I think it was one of those things that eventually I was going to see the light and start something on my own. Honestly, it's one of the best things that I've done. And I was very lucky in my career. I had like a very interesting career where it wasn't really clear how the dots connect. But, you know, I was super lucky to be at Google as a product manager in sales you know, to be there early enough where I had a chance to spend time with Larry and other formative people in the executive team and learn the ropes and, you know, like what makes a great product? You know, what are some of the hard decisions and hard calls that a great company makes? And before that, I was at Silicon Graphics that probably had an equally smart engineering culture and team, but for whatever reason, made some different and maybe not as great business decisions. And you know, the results uh, are history. So I'm mentioning that because I think like I've seen like a little bit of everything. And then, you know, actually before business school, I worked in pharma, like I've done finance, I've done product management, sales, you know, I worked on four different continents. I worked in companies that have gone public and become, became the world's most valuable company. And I worked in companies that were great once and then failed. And the only reason I'm telling you is that it just all these things shows you and teaches you so much. And at first, you don't realize why it's really relevant. But when you do something like venture, where anything and everything can happen to a startup, like it becomes really relevant. And then the interesting part of the origin story of Felices is actually, I have to admit that maybe in the beginning, I didn't have the full courage to go like zero to one, like, okay, I'm going to do this. 
I thought, you know what, like still I had the thought of maybe I should intern at a venture firm or couple, spend a couple of years just to learn the ropes. To my delight, and even though it was very hard, every single one of those VCs told me I couldn't do it. I didn't have the right background, whatever. Um, and obviously, personally, it was a little bit humbling, but also the best thing that happened to me because it's literally like, you know, burning down the bridges, you know, putting your back to the wall. And the only thing you can do if you want to prove people wrong is to actually go out and do it. So I'm mentioning this because I think the origin story, more most important part of it is the motivation. Like I was so determined to do this and I had no background for it. Like, like many of our founders, I just had this dream, you know, that my, my experience could be relevant. And I was very determined also to take full advantage of being an outsider, right? So when you look at venture, a lot of firms that started are spinoffs from existing firms. They're always related to the legacy that came in before. And the one thing that was unique about me is that I did not want to do copy and paste. I did not want to do venture just like the other firms. I wanted to get into it and start a firm and do it in a completely different way. And it was kind of became my personal crusade basically. And then now we have this great team that kind of has revolved around it. I think about your story, you know, going into investing and and you had this great sort of range of experiences, you know, SGI, which was a great company and then ultimately, you know, hit some challenges and some headwinds. Google, you know, you started fairly early and I think you left maybe the year after they went public, but you worked with these iconic entrepreneurs in Larry and Sergey. Why did you decide, because I feel like you could have done so many different things. Why did you decide, you know, investing is what you wanted to do versus starting your own company or running a big part of Google? Let me try to give you both an honest and colorful reply there. Um, I don't know, ever since I was eight years old, I used to read like business magazines. My dad at the time subscribed to Business Week and Fortune and I would see these CEOs and I'm like, I want to be just like one of these people one day. I was very good in math. You know, I thought I was going to become a trader. I grew up in a country like most people don't know this, but Turkey and Brazil and I'm Turkish are the only two companies in the world that had 100% inflation for 20 years in a row. So every night, the dinner conversation would be, are we going to put our money in German marks or whatever? And every night, we would do these calculations at the dinner table in our head. You know, like, talk about, like, preparation, right? Like, you're like, how did you go from that to, like, venture investor? I just didn't even realize that there was a discipline called venture capital. I thought the only, like, real discipline was, like, trading, like public trading. Once I realized that something like venture capital existed, and when I became intellectually honest about what I should do next, I'm like, listen, the beauty of venture capital is not very capital intensive. All the startup experience I had through Google and SGI was very relevant. I mean, I haven't been in venture, but I was at least in relevant companies. And I thought, you know, it's a really great thing in the sense that when you're working in one of these companies, all your eggs are in one basket and you literally are singularly focused on that company's success. What really attracted me to venture also was the fact that, hey, you know what? This is the one thing you can do where like every company is a little bit different. So if you're one of those people that like the journey and want to do like a lot of different things, it's a great career. And so I thought after a lot of self-reflection and when I put everything together, even though I knew nothing about it at the time, I'm like, wow, this is like actually a pretty good personality fit. You know, we talk about founder market fit and all of that. And yes, maybe I didn't have the experience, but from a personality and what, what am I good at? What can I bring to the table? 
it felt like one of the best things I can do at the time, even though there was also a big fear that I have never done this. Like, is this really going to work the way I wanted to do it? And it was an interesting time in venture when you started. This was still at a time where most venture funds looked the same. There was this movement, though, where there was these new firms that were being created. Back then, we called them super angels, right? Starting by an individual raising third-party capital for the very first time. And I'm curious, as you went from an angel to a super angel, what were the things that you had to shift from a mental standpoint? Because you are now a fiduciary to third-party capital. How did you think about things like portfolio construction, your own way of investing that sort of shifted as you went from your own balance sheet to others? I mean, to be honest with you, one of the best things that happened to me was the fact that I had to practice this solo. And honestly, like I, I remember this very distinctly. I was interviewing with a firm and the recruiter told me, yeah, like if you join this firm, you're lucky, like you will watch everything for seven years. And only after seven years, if you're really good, maybe you'll get a chance to write a check. I wrote a hundred checks in four years before we did our first institutional fund. And I had everything in this mega Excel spreadsheet and I will never forget it. I printed everything on an A3 paper and I brought it with me. People are like, who the hell is this guy? Like walking around with the spreadsheet on paper. But that was my life. Like the whole portfolio was there. And, you know, that's how I like organize everything. Like I could show like, like these are all the diversifications, all the different industries and the markups. But I have to tell you one thing. I was super lucky with the timing. So right around that time, like this whole angel and super angel wave, I think it literally only happened because it was literally the first time where you could start companies and you didn't need to buy like servers by sun, right? Like it was just starting to become capital efficient. And it was also the same time as YC got started. I was actually one of the first investors in YC personally, and I was investors in the YC batches, 12 companies a batch, right? Like it was a really interesting time. Like there were maybe 50 angel investors. There wasn't a lot of competition. There weren't like a ton of companies every like all the valuations were insanely low so i'm only being intellectually honest that it was a really great time and i took full advantage of it i took full advantage of it by making a ton more investments so imagine like you want to be an nfl player right like imagine like one route where somebody tells you you're going to be on the bench for 5 years and keep watching like great quarterbacks and another one where like literally like you're going to have three teams work of like load you're going to like practice like play games as if you're on three teams simultaneously like that's literally how i can picture what i did for the first four years and out of those hundred investments i already had 12 exits when i was like literally having the first conversations about having the first institutional fund so the reason why i'm saying that is what i wanted to you know, explain to the future LPs, it wasn't theoretical. I've actually put it into practice. I had a strategy and a lot of things I wanted to do was very carefully constructed that was not going against the strengths of established venture firms, like investing in a broad range of areas where I wasn't an expert, writing small checks where I didn't have a high ownership, investing in locations other than just Silicon Valley. All of these things were very unorthodox, like very like against the grain of like how venture was practiced. And I wanted to do that because I'm like, look, I'm the only crazy fool that's practicing this. If it works, it's great. And if it's not, then I can say, look, it was a crazy idea anyway. Well, it, it's such a smart point to, to bring up because I think, you know, I've said this before that you have to figure out what swim lane you're in and stay in it and then be faster than anybody else doing that same game. And I think if you had played somebody else's game, 
you would be playing to their strengths versus your strengths. And, and I think you realize that along with a few other people at that time that started their firms, one of the things that I'm always curious about is, you know, when people are raising their first fund and you mentioned 100, 100 angel investments, 12 exits, but at the same time, a lot of institutions weren't doing first-time funds. Uh, they were looking for more established fund. It was fund three or fund four before they got interested. Walk us through maybe that first fundraise. You know what? That's exactly what happened to me. I went to all the obvious names and I think it was just so uh, humbling and humiliating. Like it's like one person, I come in with this A3 paper that is all my investments. One of the meetings I came back and my wife is like, oh, I'm so sorry to tell you, but you have something like, I probably didn't even realize it was there probably like, who the hell is this person? Like, let's get him out of this room. Like it's a total uh, amateur, you know, but you know, there was a lot of heart and hustle and there were initial signs of something working with the strategy. And the funny thing is like all of the LPs that were experienced is like, look, we don't really believe in your strategy, but maybe this LP will. And then they're like, we don't do it, but this other one. And some of the first checks that I got were from LPs that they themselves were starting out. And their strategy was there was a new wave in venture and we're going to back this first wave of super angels that actually ended up being an extremely successful strategy, by the way. Like a lot of my peers have also done really well. I feel very proud to be in the same company with them. And so I think it was a perfect time because a lot of a, a little capital could go very far and then you could get into deals at very attractive valuations and M&A activity was through the roof. So just things that are maybe not necessarily true today, but back then it was. And so I just want to be like humble that, yes, you know, did I work really hard? Yes. Did I have a unique strategy? Yes. But timing was also like extremely convenient. So like literally, like I think the first yes that I got from an LP was after like 40 no's, 50 no's. You know, I think that's the other thing. And like, this is by the way, like when my wife was pregnant with our first son, you know, like market was crashing. So every single ounce of my fiber, like was saying like, what are you doing? Go back to your family, do something conservative. And it was so hard, like to motivate, say, oh my God, I just got the 29th. No, I need to go back and hit at it. Like, it wasn't like somebody switched the button and I got money and all of a sudden we were in business. I remember like, couple of these LPs later, I was still, we were missing. And so I have to give a lot of credit to Sundeep because he kind of took faith in me right when it was not obvious. But uh, actually our law firm got a major, major LP, you know, and it's confidential one, but it literally like that closed the fund. And I was so happy because I was so nervous of not having enough funds that I would have to go to LPs who basically did not like believe in my strategy and beg and plead just to make the fun amount. But it was a really big deal. And literally, like the head of the endowment told me, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is the smallest fund that we're ever backing in the history of this endowment. But he somehow related to me. It turns out that um, his grandmother was the first female teacher in 1927 in Turkey. I don't know. Something resonated with him. Again, I'm also saying this in a humbling way. I, I told this story, but somehow like something else clicked and somehow they took a chance on me and and by the way, we definitely paid that fate, right? Like our early funds have done so incredibly well. I feel really good that the people that trusted us, we did a lot with their money. But I do have to tell you that it was a lot of anguish, you know, a lot of no's before we got to the first yes. And even then, it wasn't obvious. But then we were off to the races and, you know, we made the most of it. When you had this first 40 no's and, you know, it's all, always difficult to hear 
No, because ultimately it's not a business model. It, it's really a reflection of whether they believe you can execute on something. Were there any learnings from those initial no's that helped you think and refine your strategy? And if you can think back of any of those no's being per- particularly impactful, maybe you could share some of that. You know what? There are two really important takeaways. Uh, so here's a crazy stat that I'm going to share with you. By the time we got to the first yes, every time I got a no, I changed my pitch. And then I would put, give it another version number, right? Like it would be version 12, version 27. The first yes, I swear to God, I think I was on version 107. You know, like in addition to, like, because I would also get feedback from friends. So the reason why I'm saying this is that we as a firm have one inviolable like tenet and that is learning and adapting rapidly. You cannot just talk about it. So literally our origin story, by the time we got to the first yes, I was on the 107th version of the same pitch. And the reason why I'm telling you is today, like I've done it thousands of times, but storytelling doesn't come naturally to me, right? I had to practice so hard. I had to get good at it. It was the exact same content, but I didn't realize or appreciate how important delivery was. So I think that was, that was a really, really crucial lesson. I just didn't give up. And like every time I got some feedback and then I also like started listening of like, I kept watching people. And whenever I said something, you could tell from body language, like they didn't care or they were like all of a sudden really interested. It's just that I've never been in the industry. Like I had to find it the hard way, right? Like I was telling a heartfelt story that I thought was relevant for me, but only a few things were relevant to them. So that journey of like being, not being subjective, but being open-minded and even if people give you harsh feedback or they give you no, like, hey, you know what? At least I'm, I'm going to take that into consideration. And the next time I tell the story, I'm not going to like do it that way or I'm not going to say X. And so literally I went through so many of those versions before even the very first yes. And then the second thing, honestly, is that all the people that have said yes at some point said yes because of the uniqueness of the pitch, right? Like they're like, listen, we're going to be honest with you. We've never done this before or like we are very skeptical, whatever, but it is unique. Like not a single LP said, you know, we are doing this. You know, it's like all the ones that didn't believe in it at the end said no. Like there wasn't a thing that an LP changed their mind. They were either doing it because like me, they were a startup and like, look, we're going to take a chance on you because all the other LPs are already an obvious fund. So the only way we're going to make this work is backing people like you. So don't prove us wrong. I'm just saying this to you because very little is spoken today about like the alignment between the LP and the manager, right? One of the things that really helped me and my soul sleep well at night, all the people that said yes, I told them, listen, if you're going to say yes, you got to believe that there is some merit to the strategy that I'm telling you. You just have to have faith that I'm going to execute. And it was not dissimilar to what I experienced at Google. Like I was the first PM. I launched Google in 11 languages. They're literally like everybody here is an engineer. You're the only person that speaks five languages. Do the thing. And I'm like, I have this crazy strategy, but I told them I speak six languages. I worked in four continents. I'm going to do the non-obvious and I'm going to go after founders that everybody like underestimates because if there is one thing I have is that I have this crazy background of having sold Google in 50 countries, having lived in places from Morocco to Brazil, you can put me in front of anyone and I can get them and I can break the ice with them. And that literally was my superpower in getting into crazy companies.
That's a great story. And you, you mentioned this earlier about being adaptive and evolving over time, which the firm has. You know, in the early days, did you have a clear sense of what type of firm you wanted to build? Did you already have a sense that you were going to build something that was beyond yourself, that was going to be multiple employees, multiple stages, was going to grow and expand? Or was it just something that you evolved into, you know, eventually? No, I mean, look, the main path I visualized, right? First of all, the zero to one moment was really important because there is like this really big decision you have to make. Being independent has great pros and cons. Like you don't have to be accountable to anyone. You know, you don't have, you can make decisions quickly. You don't have to discuss anything. So you have to make a critical decision that if you will build a franchise, it has to be more than just you. There is a reason why my name is not on the door. This was not like, you know, my ego project. I truly wanted to build something that is beyond myself. I think I also had the vision that I had a clear strategy that while the strategy did not change, every iteration, every subsequent Felices fund, we have built and expanded and did more with the strategy. Like even from the smallest fund, even from the absolute beginning, I said, this is going to be multi-stage, this is going to be multi-sector, and it's going to be multi-geo. That never changed. It's still true today. But back then, we could only, like, for instance, we could only write, like, first fund, 250K checks. Today, we can write $25 million checks, right? We, with each different iteration, with each bigger fund, we could execute the exact same strategy, but we could do it much like we could do it, like, across more stages, across more geos, with a bigger team. And every single cent that came back uh, in fees of every subsequent fund was invested back into the team or into the franchise. Like not a single one was like optimized around, oh, okay, like let me make sure that the money we make from the fund is optimized. It was literally just like an entrepreneur. Every single cent went back to like hiring the best people. I think like I think myself and Mike Maples were one of the first few among Super Angels to get a full-time CFO. And most people are like, that is so stupid. Why would you do that? And that paid back like when we had some exits and we have to make some tough decisions and audits and reporting and all of that. So I think building a franchise is really difficult, but we always had the vision. The strategy never changed, but the scaling really, really changed. And then I also think about it as like two different step functions. One was like, nobody really talks about it, but in venture, you have two step functions. One is you first have to build a brand and reputation of a track record. And only after that, you can kind of start capitalizing. So we said, listen, first part of the firm, first decade, we're only going to optimize around track record of great companies. And then we can go back and start optimizing around ownership and, you know, other stuff, which experienced LPs will tell you these five things. But, you know, I will tell you from math, you cannot optimize five things at once. You have to kind of make your choice. The second thing is I took a page from General McChrystal's book. I think we went from a solo practitioner uh, practice to a single team, to then go to a team of teams, right? So like I was on my own, I had a dream, I had a thesis, I started seeing the first signs and I'm like, I don't want to do this alone. I want to build a real franchise. Then it was a small team. Everything happened within a small team. And then when that started working, we had to make another conscious decision of going from a single team to a team of teams. And that takes a lot. So now you're delegating to people, you know, and one of the things that I'm really proud, like where the firm is today and a lot of the things that made us different, almost every single thing was basically either invented, executed or practiced by somebody we hired. You know what I mean? Like the dream, like is the dream, but 
also like part of the thing that I'm really proud of, like, is not that I've done like a few things, but the people that we brought on, the people that joined the team and had faith with us, you know, have done amazing things like our founder pledge and like all these cool things that we've done. I'm so proud that it's some of the people that we brought on. And if I showed you their background, you're like that person, I can never envision them in their role today. And so that's something that is also really cool for me because most venture firms, all the roles are taken by people that you're like, it's so obvious. And we did the exact opposite. We, we took people that had raw hunger and ambition and put them in roles where they proved themselves and took us to great lengths. I can double click on the, the team aspect because what you were doing before you had a team was incredibly successful, both as an angel doing your first you know, few investments, but ultimately, you know, you do need a team as you continue to scale the number of companies, the number of funds, the size of those funds. But oftentimes, just like a company, your first few hires help codify the culture of the, the company, in this case, the firm. What were the tangibles and intangibles that were that you had to have for anybody you hired. And maybe you can walk through your first few hires and the things that you had to check off to say, this person is right for Felicis. Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can talk about so many things. Let me try to maybe touch on a few of the most important ones. I think the first thing that really matter, and it's still true today, and not just who we hire, but who's going to be with the firm long-term, is that you have to have uh, a growth mindset. So when you say that you're building a firm on the value of learning and adapting rapidly, which for me was really important, you know, and then also like you come from an immigrant background, self-made, it's not a coincidence that the other thing that I wanted to do differently, there are other like historically successful venture firms. And when you look at the people, they are extremely successful. They're really smart. They're really accomplished, but there's not a lot of diversity. And like today we talk about it, but back then, like nobody thought about it. And I thought about it as a critical advantage. And it's something I learned from Google. So it was very important to bring people that share the same values, but also in some ways were truly diverse and not just diverse in terms of their background, but diverse in terms of work experiences, diverse in terms of languages they spoke, diverse in terms of like sports they like. Every single thing was like not overlapping. And the reason why I thought about that is because everything we do in our life touches us in some way and like gives us a bias in what we do. So if everything was different, then we'll cancel each other biases and the decision we make and will hopefully end up being more pure and better. So that was that was something. Growth mindset was another thing. Culture was also like a really big deal, like because, hey, this is a tough one to quantify, but like venture is full of people that are very smart, accomplished. So you have a lot of big egos. And it was very unusual. Like I'm the exact opposite of that. Like I have the, the value that no matter how successful you are, you don't show it off and you go back to work and do it harder the next day. It's as simple as that. And to be honest with you, in some ways, by default, we had to pick venture outsiders because most venture insiders, you know, if they're really successful, they're anything but humble. You know, they have big egos. They want to be famous. They want to be on press. And we did the exact opposite. We're like, we want people with the raw intellectual horsepower, but they're very humble. You know, they work hard and they have like these big ambitions, but they put the team first and, you know, they put the learning and growth first. And that was just not very common in venture. And every single person that we brought onto the team literally shared that. And I tell you, like, it was hard learning because that is not easy, right? Like that is not... You know, it's one of the most difficult things that I've, I've found is like, 
you know, you talk to so many people and to be able to nail it and to build a team that is cohesive, that gets along, that has fun with each other, but also where each of their like personal strengths end up translating into something better and translate into an overall strength for the firm. It took a lot of iterations. I, I will tell you that like, and we invested a lot in like a cohesive team and did a lot of coaching, did a lot of exercises, what personalities work together. I'm just saying this because I've never heard any VC mention that. And I feel like it probably was a big factor in our success and, you know, where the team is today. We put a lot of time, money and effort into that. One of the things that, you know, we often talk about on this podcast is how difficult it is to sustain success across generations, across cycles. And now, you know, 17 years in, you've been through really two cycles, if we count the current one, you know, as an investor, we've seen the market also change. You know, when you started, you, you mentioned it was a great time. There was very few venture firms of your size and scale. Now the market has exploded over the last 10 years. I think we've seen 2,000 new firms uh, be created from 2012 to 2021. Always you have to think about evolution to continue to keep that edge, to have some kind of moat as a venture firm. Tell us a little bit about how you do that internally. How do you ensure that you, know, you are being competitive, that you're winning the deals that you want to get into? And what do you think are the main ingredients of staying competitive? No, I mean, look, you're now touching on my favorite point where I think strategy is really important and strategy manager fit is really important, right? From the beginning, we had a strategy that most people just did not grok and they're like, this is just impossible. And I think it was one of those cases where I think maybe 1% of all people in venture are like designed to make the strategy successful, maybe 0.1%. And we were literally like one of those teams. Like when you start saying we're going to invest across the world, across sectors, across different stages, that's a very big universe. So it freaked people out in the beginning. But what people didn't appreciate or understand about it is it gave us so much surface area to work with, right? The way to think about it is like venture is like a five-dimensional chess game we're like, listen, just because we have that surface area doesn't mean we're going to boil the ocean. We're going to go handpick like the best thing, like this stage, you know, this sector and, you know, this geo might be the best. And what basically resulted, like if I showed you like every single Felicis fund, we're on eight, the next one will be ninth. Every single funds mix is different, like not a single fund. You know, one of them has like enterprise focus, the other one has consumer focus, like literally like all the sector stages and everything is shifted. But you look at the performance is super consistent and you look at every single thing we picked is literally like five years, three years before those markets got hot. We perfectly picked the markets and for the most part, like pick really great companies in it. So it was so important to have the strategy that is such an important element of our consistent success. And that strategy never changed, by the way. Like, it was also by design because, you know, the benefit of this strategy, while it's broad and very difficult to execute, you know, like, for instance, let's say that today, like, I decided to be a crypto fund. If all of a sudden crypto fails, now you're done, right? Like, you cannot go back and say, I'm going to do enterprise. People are like, well, we paid you money to do crypto. So you're just done. You're stuck into that. And that's all you can look at. And then... We did some really creative, like smart things on international, like until then, like every venture funds international strategy was to open up like in Europe, in Israel, in Brazil, every time they had a country, they would go open up. And I'm like, listen, this is the biggest, well, I don't want to say waste of time, but it was very ineffective because just for the sake of finding like five or 10 companies in that country, now you have to look at 990 
uh, mediocre or subpar companies. And we said, listen, if we say we're going to do global reach, but only for the best companies, but not go specifically by country. Like when we invested in Rovio, the goal was not to invest in a Finnish company. We wanted to invest in the best mobile company. And at the time, that was the number one mobile app. When we invested in Shopify, the goal was not to invest in a Canadian company, but the best like commerce platform. And it happened to be in Canada, in Ottawa. When we invested in Canva, the goal was not to invest you know, in an Australian company, but like, hey, a company that can democratize like the application of design beyond Adobe, right? Like it just happens to happen to be in Sydney. And when you look at it, wow, like we are the perfect team to execute. We all spoke multiple languages. We all lived around the world. Unlike, you know, the venture orthodoxy here, we said, look, we love the fact that you're in Canada or Helsinki or Sydney. When other people are telling you it can't be done, we are saying the exact opposite. We're like, it absolutely can be done. We believe in you. And by the way, we're going to be on your side rolling up the sleeve. So I'm just telling you this because it was such an important factor. And trust me, when 50 people tell you, no, we're not going to give you money, there was so much pressure to give up on our, on this strategy and say, you know what? It would be so much easier if we just do what the LPs tell us. But then we would have sold our soul and we would have copied and pasted everyone and we would have just been a mediocre fund because we are never going to be successful being the 57 fund trying to copy somebody else's strategy. They've already done this well and we're going to get crushed trying to do that. Instead, we played our own game, even though it was really hard to back, even though it was very unorthodox, it was just a perfect fit. And that is such an important part of our you know, performance. The other thing that really helped us, like there was this adage, oh my God, like Samir, like you have banking experience, you should only invest fintech. We have 47 unicorns in our firm. Not a single one was led by an expert, not a single one from biotech to like programming bacteria to space shuttle, you know, satellites to education, to enterprise, to consumer, to mobile, every single one, not a single one was led by an expert. And we have some of the best companies. And again, people told us, if you don't have the expertise, you can't make it. And we proved them wrong. And I cannot tell you like how fun this is because it gives us this energy every morning to get up and say, again, let's do some more companies when people say that we can't do it, but let's prove them wrong and we can do it. Yeah. You said something earlier about optimizing on you know the very best companies. And you mentioned three companies that are not located in the US in Rovia, Shopify, and Canva. There is this paradox of wanting to be able to raise money easily. And in order to do that, sometimes you have to create a portfolio or create a thesis that checks the normal boxes. And you you ultimately decided that's not what we're going to do. We're going to make our LPs that do believe in something unorthodox that's different. We're going to make them a lot of money because we feel like we have a competitive advantage by doing this strategy. But also, you know, I think along the way, you've done deals where it doesn't hit the normal box of, okay, the valuation is X or the ownership is Y. How do you get comfortable with those things and making exceptions where you can? And I think Canva is a great example of, you know, it's Australia, you know, it's a founder team that were, I think the two of them were involved, you know, higher valuation, different type of company focused on a space that not a lot of people thought could get big in, in the design world. Tell us how you get comfortable with those type of unorthodox opportunities. Yeah, I mean, look, this kind of, uh, and I mean, Wes deserves a lot of credit for Canva. I mean, we found it, but like he led it and like had countless trips to Australia. Like I have to pay him respects. Look, I think the God honest thing is when I did the first hundred investments and I had 12 exits, 
what was really humbling for me is that every time, maybe not necessarily breaking, but every time I bent a rule, I had a winner. And what was also humbling is after the fact, like after 10 years, I went back and I'm like, okay, I'm like, I kind of had an idea and I was intellectually honest. It's like, which one of these companies I'm like, this has got to be a winner. And which one of these companies is like, it's total lottery ticket. You know, I think like, I'm going to be very honest with you and confess more than 50%, maybe up to 70% were companies I didn't expect, but I could see like, what were the initial signs of what made them successful. So I think venture is full of these like rules that while it might have made sense when you came up with it, absolutely does not apply to all the companies. Venture is an outlier business. And by sheer nature, you cannot put outlier companies into a formula. Like you can't just say you had one bad experience and you're like, we're never going to invest in a company where the founders are in a relationship. Total scrap. Like it's totally random. Like that is not true. You know, we're never going to invest in a company that's in Sydney. Like somebody told Toby, like, we're never going to invest in an enterprise company like Ottawa. Like what is Ottawa? Like you can't build a company there. And so every time people make these judgment calls, they're missing an important truth. Toby never had to compete for talent in Ottawa. Like he paid talent like one third of like what Silicon Valley was paying for. You know, people were hungrier and like they didn't come to like Shopify with like a direction of I need to be VP and I need this team of 100 people. They just didn't like solve things. We did the same thing at Google, by the way. Larry and Sergey like hired like these unorthodox people that had nothing to do, but like they're like, these people are smart, they'll figure it out. So we did the exact same thing. And every time there was a stressful moment, the only question we ask, is there something about this company that is screaming some potential or some hint of an outlier? And if that's the case, if we feel like this is the bet we need to make, then we need to like close our eyes to all the other things, right? Like, by the way, after we signed the term sheet for Canva, I think it took seven months to close. There were something like 50 convertibles. I think legal work took six months. Like, I think three times we were about to give up. The lawyers came back and say, like, we really don't know if we're going to be able to clean this up. So it was the first price round. I'm just saying like so many people would have walked away, right? Like you're like, it's not worth it. And like, how much are you going to own of this company? Like what's the valuation? We did a hundred X multiple. I think 100 X multiple like was unheard of. And then people told us you're a tiny little fund, like 40 million, like you should only do seed bets. And then, you know what? We had the insight. Everybody else was doing seed bets. I'm like, I want to do anything but seed bets. I don't want to compete with my friends. So like all the ones we did, like Shopify was series A. We were the smallest investor. Like the whole round was almost as big as our size. Rovio was series A. The round was bigger than our fund. You know, Fitbit, we did a series B. Like, I think it was like, again, one of the latest stage bets even we made like in the first 12 months of the company. Instead of saying, you know what, this is comfortable, we did the most uncomfortable ones. And honestly, like almost every single one of them turned into an outlier. Did it also turn into negative outlier? Yes. But what people don't understand is that you cannot manage this business by minimizing risk because you are only successful if you have positive outliers. You cannot just say, I avoided the negative outliers and I'm good. If you don't have positive outliers, you just cannot succeed, period. If you look back at all these positive outliers that you've done, and you mentioned a few of these, are there any commonalities, at least from a founder perspective, that you've, you've observed that lead to a better probability of an outlier outcome? Yeah, I mean, we, we call this storytelling or founder's ability to articulate. I mean, I think I've seen this something, this also from Lurie and Sergey, that, you know, the most pure division is 
the less that you have to add to make it a story, right? Like the, some of the very best founders that I met, it was like five minute conversation and a demo, you know, like, and then some others are like hundred pages of PowerPoint. This is something that I learned from the restaurant industry. I was talking to a Michelin three-star chef once and I'm like, this is an incredible food. Like, what do you do? He's like, I start with the world's best ingredients and then I try to do as little as possible. It's literally like the answer I wasn't expecting at all, right? So like literally that's what we do. Find the world's best companies and like do everything that they ask. And then honestly, other than that, like don't touch it. Like don't, don't change the magic formula. Um, but honestly, almost all of the founders were a little eccentric, had a slightly crazy story. But they were they were very, very strong in articulating what they believed to be the scenario of success. How would success look at scale? Um, and if you don't have a plan, you, you almost plan to fail, right? Like if you fail to plan, you know, your plan is to fail. So all those founders were very articulate. They had a great story. It was very product oriented. Almost all of them had religion around product that created product excellence. Like whenever we listen to like Steve Jobs, he was so obsessed that even the inside of every Mac had to be perfect. You know, like it takes a discipline like that to come up with a perfect product. So every one of those founders had like a Steve Jobs moment like that. Like I talked to Shopify, Toby, and like he spent like half an hour telling me how he took his two best engineers and did this data warehouse that nobody else had because he wanted to allow real-time decision-making. I know Canva told us something else. Every one of these companies told us, the founders told us something we've never heard before. And we just looked at each other. We're like, wow, it's kind of like you almost want to work for this company, but the next best thing is to invest in this company. And then we can do it obviously as a portfolio. So that's what ended up happening. It's an amazing story, like how the firm has evolved. So many entrepreneurs that you've backed and you've actually, you know, as I mentioned before, been through so many macro changes both in the market as well as micro on the, on the venture side. Over the last nine months, we've seen a complete reset in the market. We've seen what the S&P, the NASDAQ have done. And of course, all of the liquidity that was pumped into, into the system in 2020 and 21 is now being extracted. And we're seeing a lot of challenges. And many venture investors weren't actually around the last time we had a downturn. And so really facing you know these seminal moments of learning of how to work with companies, how to raise capital, and how to withstand what is now a downturn market that's incredibly volatile. A lot of information and advice is dispensed to entrepreneurs about how to withstand, how to become a good wartime CEO. But tell us a little bit about what does it mean to be anti-fragile as an investor? So I think there are two different answers to that. One is anti-fragile by default is that you build a portfolio that is so resilient. So anti-fragile is not like it's made out of steel, so it can't be broken by, by design, no matter what the shock, you know, it is designed so that it can like withstand it. And so one of the other like insights that was not obvious at all of building a portfolio that is so diverse is that we had healthcare, we had frontier, we had all these different disciplines. And the logic is, listen, even if the world is coming to an end and things are really crashing, some of these will still succeed. Do we have a diverse enough portfolio where it is so diverse that even in our darkest days, there is something in the portfolio that is designed to benefit from it? So I'm obsessed with this concept of anti-fragility. I never talked to Nicholas Nassim Taleb, but I'm a huge fan. I love reading him. He's, by the way, like a very controversial person. He's not, I think, a very friendly personality. He doesn't suffer fools, but I am obsessed with this 
you know, concept of anti-fragility and like his other book, Black Swan, it is so applicable to our industry and it's very hard to grok, but our strategy is very much like, hey, listen, this reflects what we're trying to do. I think the second thing is, listen, like I always tell people the only thing that keeps me up at night is nuclear war or like a war with China. Like if we can manage to avoid that, we're going to be fine because even before I started investing, when I joined Google, that was after the 99 crisis, actually right during, you know, like when I first started my fund, we were going through the 2008 crisis. And every time, unless the world got into the brink of nuclear war or whatever, humanity somehow gotten itself out of it. Sometimes it took two years, sometimes it took longer. And those times were the best because whenever there is a bad moment, People can't think beyond it and they think like the world is done or it's bad. So they stop, they hesitate. And those are the best times to be active because you're not competing with others. It's easier to hire people like and then it's easier to succeed because no one else is investing in their business. Right. But the most important thing that I got from all those things that I both tried to live it as a founder of a venture firm. And I tell my founders that it's so obvious that you're going to laugh, but like, don't run out of gas or don't run out of electricity. Like your job number one as a CEO, as long as you have oxygen, you can live. As long as you have cash, you can continue to operate. The easiest way to break and fail is you don't plan and you don't have adequate margin or buffer and you just run out of cash before your strategy or your plan has a chance to bear fruit. So I think almost everything that I saw could literally be boiled down to just don't run out of steam. You just have to manage it really well. And now the only force majeure that I will add to it, if we, if we get into nuclear war, like all bets are off. But other than that, this strategy will definitely work. And second thing is just totally understand what can give you resilience. And I think this is like then become more of a religion for us to pay more attention to moats and you know, not just say, is this company differentiated, but look at stats, like how efficient is the revenues, you know, like how much like money did it take for this company to generate revenues? Because it's so easy to pump money into a company and generate growth. So I don't look at any of these like crazy, like hysteria stats out there. The only thing that I look at is like things that are very difficult to like game. And that's normally two variables that move in different directions. You can buy growth, but to generate efficient growth, you need to spend less money and generate more growth. And those two things move in different directions. It's it's not very easy to game. And so I look at things like that and that gives me like a perspective on what I think I should have confidence for the future. Something that's really stood out to me during this conversation is many of your points of view are aligned with things that are non-obvious, non-consensus in nature. And given where we are today in the market, I'm curious on what gets you excited, in particular, whether it's a trend or a technology that might be non-obvious and non-consensus to the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I think about it a lot. Like, maybe I can start with, like, a few that we were in the record. But, like, I don't know, like, six years ago, people asked me, what is the hottest thing? I said, mental health. They're like, mental health. Like, is that a joke? And nobody really appreciated it. And then COVID happens. And now like, oh my God, the whole world is a mental health crisis, right? We can't spend money enough to deal with that. Even our founders pledge. We're like, listen, like people just have no idea the pressure that these founders are under. This is not a gimmick. Um, or when we basically invested in education with Guild Education, 
of uh, certifying people. And people are like, that can never be a big business. And it became one of our most successful companies. Or we backed uh, this company called Garden Health, which is liquid biopsy. I'm like, I can tell you one thing, like cancer, like hopefully we will solve it, but it's not going away. I mean, we made great progress, but look, as soon as long as people are going to get sick, they're going to spend any amount of money to not die, right? Like I always say, like, you know, you will not die is a great business plan. There are a lot of these things that when you pay attention to it, and then most people are like, I won't touch health, but like, listen, there are some amazing things in health. I think when I look into the future, the kind of things that are that I'm seeing, there is now new things where like, listen, like green tech had to be like, you know, has been for like years and years, like one of the riskiest places to invest. Now we're at the final point where like climate change is, you know, so stark and, you know, government, like t- there are so much tailwinds, like we call it Earth Tree. We're looking at a lot of like interesting, like optimistic tech of like that can like make the world a better place. We're investing in other companies. We talked about mental health. We talk about the aspect of it for professional workers, but it's a real crisis for teenagers. We have a company, you know, that's helping like teenagers deal with mental health crisis that I think will be huge. You know, we had a great uh, um you know, success in edtech with Guild Education and then with uh, Pluralsight, training like professional people. But, you know, now I'm excited about how about other sides of education where maybe like, you know, we're looking at a company that's dealing with disabilities. My own son is dyslexic. So there are a couple of these things that I'm like super excited about that many people are not thinking about. But I do think like has a big implication. Like, for instance, we were just discussing like, I feel like you're going to see we were in Adyen Payments, the big industry. I think we're going to see, you know, other really big companies in tax. So we're looking, we're very active in tax. And so a few other things. But the funny thing is, like, it's not like I'm telling you something. Some of it is more science fiction-y, but some of the other things are just so basic because, like, a couple, few things in, uh, are certain in life, you know, debt and taxes. So, you know, like some of these markets, when I tell you, like, what? Like, that's so boring. But then you realize it's actually like a huge market, you know. Um, so we're looking at a few other things and some other crazy ideas where, like, people have taken something that maybe was, you know, not a big deal. But, like, what if, if that thing was a utility and you had a totally different approach to it? So we're seeing more and more of these interesting stuff. Uh, that is fascinating us. So hopefully uh, I'll get a chance to share more of that with you in uh, future episodes as well. I know I just asked you to pull out your crystal ball and look ahead, but let's end with looking back over your 17 years running Felicis. And presumably you've iterated, you've evolved, you've made mistakes along the way. And I'd love to hear if you were to go back and provide your 2005 self with advice on investing What would those main pieces of advice be? Well, first of all, let me clarify one thing. There could be no learning and adapting without making mistakes. So if you ask me today if I would change anything, I wouldn't change a single thing. Even if it meant that I could make like 10 to 100 times as much money, whatever, I wouldn't change a single thing. So let me, first of all, put that on the record. Very quickly, I think on your question, the number one thing that I learned that was very humbling to me is that the aggregate market cap of the companies I turned down or missed was probably multiples of the companies I said yes, and I did really well. So the first humbling fact, you think you're really good, you're not that good. You know, so it's very important to be bold. Every time 
we broke our own rule that instead of being bolder, instead of optimizing for every Canva, there was another company where like, we should have been just as bold, but we got conservative. We got nervous. We're like, it's our LP's money. We should be conservative. And every time we were a little bit more conservative, that ended up being a huge outlier. So the number one thing I would tell myself, be bolder. It is so inhuman to think about it, but you can literally be more successful in this industry that is you know, directly correlated to risk. Like you almost have to like take much more risk than you think you're capable of to be able to get to a point where like literally that's like as much risk you need to take to be the absolute best version of the strategy that you're implementing. It is so not obvious, but that's the number one takeaway. Number two takeaway is something much more tactical. And I wish I, w- I did more similar to like being better in storytelling that took me like thousand versions of my story until I got more fluent. I feel like I wrote more things down and I took more photos. One of the things that I realized, like I will be in a moment and I will reflect and I will contemplate and I will pontificate and then I don't write it down. And, you know, like I wish I wrote down more so I could see what was going through my head 10 years ago. Like I kind of remember, but not when we like was dealing with something with when we were dealing with something with Shopify or Canva, whatever. And then some others that we didn't come through, because if you don't document it, it's very difficult, like after the fact to recreate what really transpired. So I think like I'm really much more getting into like the Bezos method of write everything down, like try to put it. So we're trying to be better on that as a firm that We were very strongly learning and adapting culture, but the one thing we failed to do consistently is to write things down. So we're doing that. So in summary, be bolder. You need to be a lot bolder as an entrepreneur, as an investor. And number two, like write things down, reflections, lesson, write things down. It really makes a big difference. That's great pieces of advice. And I I think both of those are incredibly true, as well as you have to make mistakes. You can't be afraid of making mistakes. You just have to learn from those mistakes so you can get better, you know, the next time around. Congratulations on building such a great franchise over such a long time. I, th- I feel like we've known each other since the early days of starting Felicis, and it's come so far. So again, thanks so much for being on the show. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, Sammy. I really appreciate it. That is an absolute fact. And congrats to you on taking the entrepreneurial journey and on your success as well. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Aiden. To learn more about him or Felice's ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes of the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.